everyone, welcome back to the Sucking Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm your host, James Huang. And after several weeks of taking this show literally on the road, we're finally back in the studio. Although we're still missing one. So I'm joined here today at the Boulder Gruppetto with pro mechanic Zach Edwards. Hi, Zach. Hello. Along with tech editor Dave Rome, who is no longer in lockdown in Sydney, Australia. Hi, Dave. Woo-hoo. Hey. And last but certainly not least, we are missing our resident dead blow hammer, Cycling Tips editor-in-chief, Kaylee Fretz. Wah, wah. How are you two doing? Good. Yeah, just hanging out. On a nice little rainy day here in Colorado. Yeah, I'm over the jet lag finally. It kind of took a bit, but now I'm back home and good to go. No, no one, no one takes my advice with the whole jet lag thing. Like no one, no one wants to deal with that. I don't, no, I don't I get like, it. I like to eat food too much. I know, but then you're, but then you're jet lagged for like a week. It's awful. Yeah. Only this way. Going to Europe, it's no problem at all. Yeah, James, you don't want too many people to, to adopt your methods because then you won't be smug about it every time someone else tries. <laughs> well, but okay. Okay, fine. Okay, fine. I am a little bit smug about it, but it works. For those listening, what is your, what is your method? All right. I'll, I'll go through this again. Uh, and I think I, I can't remember where I read about this, but you basically just don't eat for, I think it was 18 hours before whenever breakfast is in your new destination. And it somehow resets your body clock and it totally works, which granted, I guess at this point, doesn't really matter for me now. How I don't starving really are anyone. you? Not very, as a matter of fact. Really? No. Which is, which is very interesting considering I, I'm generally eating all the time. Sounds terrible. I mean, I'd, I'd rather be jet lagged. I, I could also be more motivated by the jet lag thing because I'm getting old now and jet lag is worse than it used to be. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Anyway, we have a lot to talk about in today's show, as it turns out. We've got some big consolidation news involving a number of major brands. We've got a pretty big recall to talk about. Uh, I also just got back from Sea Otter, uh, the trade show in Monterey, California. And we've got a pretty massive backlog of Ask a Mechanic questions to start sifting through. I think we're going to start with the recall first, though. So in not so great news, Specialized has just announced a recall of its flagship Tarmac SL7 road bike. Uh, So in a nutshell, essentially the custom upper headset assembly that Specialized uses on that bike to hide all the cables inside the frame is apparently damaging the carbon fiber steer tube in certain situations, which is obviously not such a great thing. Although no injuries have been reported, Specialized has nonetheless issued a voluntary recall and an immediate stop ride order until owners can get their bikes to authorized dealers for an inspection and retrofit of updated headset parts. And those updated headset parts include a new compression ring with a stainless steel sleeve that protects the surface of the steer tube and quite possibly the longest compression plug in the history of threadless headsets to reinforce the steer tube. So it, looking at the parts that are available for this thing or the parts that are going to be retrofitted into these bikes, it does seem like it will fix the issue in the sense that the damage probably won't happen anymore. But I have so many questions, not just about this particular recall, mind you, but about the dozens of fork-related recalls that we've seen in just the recent years. I am dying to hear your thoughts on these on this thing. Who wants to go first? I mean, Zach, I feel like you've got a lot to say here. We were, we were uh, James and I were texting about this yesterday, and it was quite funny. Um, I mean, first of all, it's like unspecialized; like it's kind of terrible. Like it's a really nice bike, and now they're doing this massive recall, and it's not not a good look for them for sure. But yeah, it's like I don't know. Like I, I looked like within five minutes on the CPSC website, and there were like countless countless fork recalls so to me it seems like if this is something that's happening regularly with specialized and other companies like why 
aren't we doing something about it, like reinforcing the steer tube, making it thicker or using a long compression plug to start out with? Like, it seems like it's the, it, every single one of these is like compression plug and, or compression ring and the fork, like in every single one of these recalls. So it's like, if there's the same thing happening in every fork recall, why are we not addressing that before it becomes a recall? It feels to me like the in bike industry forgot about safety for a while there. Right, like we we've come from a point where steer tubes were once failing. You know, remember George Hincapie's famous uh, fork failure at uh, at Peru Bay, and the industry started paying real attention to it. You know, they started bonding in these inserts into steer tubes, and uh, you know there was reinforced steer tubes, and fork weights went up. And then we've kind of come full circle. We've come back to fork weights coming down again and you know all these integrations and cables rubbing against things and it, it seems like for the last couple of years maybe three years the industry's kind of perhaps gone a bit too far towards the performance edge and have forgotten about the safety factor in this um so i, I kind of see all these recalls as almost a positive because it's it's lessons being learned at the moment yeah but they're lessons that we've we've already learned it's lessons we're having to relearn, which sucks. But I mean, it's thankfully like, you know, specialized having to do a recall is going to send a message to everyone else in the industry that this isn't a place where, you know, you can mess around with. To argue that, like why last year were BMCs and factors fork snapping, not a wake up call to specialize already and other companies? Well, the, BM, the BMC one was definitely a wake up call. Uh, the factor one... I guess wasn't a recall, right? Like that's that's kind of that was more a production error and over tightening of expander plugs. But but yeah, it's it, we've had many of these wake up calls in the last two or three years. But I think Specialized might be the the final big one where the rest of the industry goes, okay, no more dumb forks from now on. I'm gonna say that is not going to happen. <laughs> well, I mean, well, I mean it's not going to happen yeah. in that we've still got three legacy years, three to five legacy years of dumb forks on the market at the moment. So. We'll see more recalls. I still don't see that being a driving factor for people to, to, to kind of pay more attention to that sort of thing. Because again, fork recalls have been happening forever and ever. Mm. Uh, and I guess I would have to look through the years to see if there has been some sort of ebb and flow in terms of how many recalls, fork related recalls we've had. Um, but as far as my memory goes, anyway, I don't. I don't remember them. It seems being, pretty consistent. It does seem pretty consistent, and it's obviously an extremely critical component of your bike. There's no redundancies. The interesting. It's not even just high end bikes. Like when I was looking on the mm. CPSC website yesterday, it's like low end bikes too with steel forks that are getting recalled because steer tubes are breaking. Yeah, for manufacturing errors in those cases. Yeah. So one thing I wonder, however, with kind of this recent rash of related recalls and I guess issues in general that we have noticed. Um, to, to be clear, the specialized steer tube, uh, the steer tube on this Tarmac SL7 fork is not some modified shape. It is round. Um, but the issue is coming about because they use this, well, so threadless headsets have these things called uh, tapered split rings typically, which, which are kind of wedged in between the surface of the steer tube and the upper bearing. And as you add preload to the whole system, it kind of pulls the whole thing together and pulls that that wedged ring in there so that the fork doesn't doesn't rock around inside the the, uh, the bearing. And this particular upper compression ring that Specialized was using had these various channels cut into it for the internal cable routing. Um, and 
from what I can tell anyway, the issue and based on what specialized, you know, kind of what they've written in, in their notices and stuff is that um, particularly in rougher conditions and seemingly my guess is certainly when the headset is maybe written with a little, little, little bit loose, perhaps that the edges of that, that channeled compression ring are basically sort of like digging in or like somehow concentrating stress on that surface of the fork. Um, other issues that we've had in for other brands, those often deal with steerer tubes that are not round. And those modifications have also been made to accommodate internally routed cabling. How much of this do we attribute to bicycle brands trying to figure out clever ways to run the cables inside the frame? I mean, I think it's part of it for sure, but I don't think it's the sole thing. Like, I'm not a fan of internal cable routing, but there's been fork recalls, like we just talked about, like for ages. So I don't think it's necessarily just because of I think it's internal cabling adds weight to the bike. They're trying to save weight on the bike. So let's make this a little bit thinner here, a little bit thinner there. And then all of a sudden you have issues compounding. And yeah. In some cases, like with the BMC recall, that was related to internal cable routing because they went away from around steerer and they, they created stress rises by basically folding the carbon at very sharp angles. And that, you know, that there were manufacturing issues in doing that consistently is my understanding. Um, for the specialized, it, it kind of seems like they've just repeated something that was already to be uh, known to be an issue, which is that you know that that top compression ring can cut into the carbon on an impact, and that's actually something that um, Graham Shrive, who used to be with uh, Cervelo, now with Factor, he's the head of engineering. He actually specifically told me that that was something that he designed into the the Factor Ostro, then new all round aero bike. He specifically told me at that at that point that they've created this aluminium insert to prevent the common digging in of these compression rings into the carbon steerer. Um, so yeah, it's not it's not exclusive to any one brand. It just seems to be a common issue, and I don't think you can blame internal cable routing for this. I think it's the lessons were there before, and it was a known issue before. Um, I guess just in specialized case with the tarmac is that to enable the internal cable routing, they had to make that top compression ring problematic i guess or they did make it problematic in in turn which is interesting on i've noticed on specialized bikes the last couple of years not necessarily tarmac but a lot of their other bikes that upper compression ring is plastic which i'm assuming they've made that choice so that it doesn't sit there and dig in so it's interesting that they didn't put that into consideration yeah when designing the tarmac it is yeah so anyway hopefully we won't see this problem from at least specialized again. Yeah. I mean, to, to, I guess, go further into this SL7 thing, the parts uh, that, I, that I mentioned specialized is retrofitting onto these bikes for the ones that at least don't have damaged steers already anyway. Um, one of the things that is pretty interesting to me is this stainless steel, I think it's stainless steel sleeve that, yeah, is, it is. Um, that goes around so the steer tube. The, the, these parts I've noticed, it was an inline change from the first couple of tarmacs that I built to the last couple. Um, the, the last few have, have this newer, uh, compression ring that has this, yeah, it's a stainless sleeve that kind of fits really snugly in between the, the aluminum and the carbon steer. I gotta say, I like that idea a lot. And I kind of wonder if that is something that perhaps other companies might implement just to continue to spread out the load and kind of just increase the, increase the, the fudge factor. Or the, yeah, Definitely. I mean, I think the more, whether it's this or like the more things that companies can do to spread the load or make it stronger or whatever, like that's a better thing, a good thing. 
like I'm sure each company is going to come up with their own way to do this differently, but preventing breakages is should be number one. But what I find really interesting is that companies spend all this time figuring out ways how to shave grams from things. And then in order to, I guess, kind of make up for perhaps making things too light or not foreseeing certain misuse issues that might occur with things, that they are going back and adding back all of this weight. I mean, I don't know what the <laughs> what the extra weight is going to be for this stainless sleeve and this huge compression plug that that Specialized is putting back in, but I'm sure that it is quite a bit heavier than the original setup. Yeah, I mean, the last Specialized fork recall, which was, I believe, the Tarmac, the SL4, and I think maybe the Cruxes as well. What they did there was we ever, you had to send all the forks in and they essentially glued a one inch carbon steer into the inch and an eighth carbon steer to basically wow. make it double thickness. And then they're like, okay, now it's strong enough. It's not going to break. So I feel like they've already done that. So why not now? Why can't we just do that all the time? Yeah, why can't we just make the steers thicker? Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a consumer issue, right? Like a consumer is not going to buy this $12,000 bike if it's a hundred grams heavier. Right. It's, it's the reality of it, right? Like it's, it's the, the it's ethos is attractive reality. because it's 700 grams. If it was an 850 yeah. gram frame and it rode just as well and it had all the same features, people probably wouldn't buy into the story. I mean, it's kind of, it's because we're all weight obsessed. Um, well, so I feel like they could put a marketing spin. This will not break and you will continue to have teeth. And I would buy that. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. brings up the teeth thing. It's a very sensitive subject for me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's true though. Like, yeah, safety should be a marketing thing. Like we have engineered this. This is what separates our product from this other product. Is I I, I would actually argue that safety should be the first assumed design factor, and everything else after that well, is an. I, I guess that's right? the issue because the assumption on everything is that it is safe to use, safe to ride. It shouldn't. It shouldn't be something that you necessarily have to tout because it should just be a given. Yeah. Um. I guess along that same line of thinking, Dave, I guess this is kind of more a question for you in particular, I guess for the two of us, is I've seen the question raised in, I guess, our comment section, maybe Slack and forums and whatever, um, that the media uh, may have, you know, may, may bear some responsibility here in the sense that we are constantly talking about how aero cables, internal this and lighter that, so on and so forth. And we don't really talk that much about safety, but... Mm. Um, Looking back in hindsight, had I really taken the time to take apart an SL7 and really look at that, you know, it does seem to me, of course, again, with the benefit of hindsight, that that style of compression ring would be a stress concentrator. It doesn't really make you would, sense. You would like to think, though, like you, a not an engineer at Specialized, pulling that apart would be like, ah, this looks like it could be an issue. But you would assume that, hey, maybe Specialized has tested this. The steer is designed to take this force. Like, you're not going to look at it and be like, right oh, this is going to break. I'm not going to ride it. Or if we do our job properly, we go, this is a problem. Then we contact the engineers at Specialized who then assure us that they've done their research and done all the necessary tests and then tell us it is safe. Right. Uh, yeah, and then we're back to square one anyway, which is, you know, the company telling us, no, no, we're, the product is definitely safe. So there's not a great answer here. Um, so Zach, I know, again, the assumption is always that whatever is available for sale is safe to ride. Um, but I was talking to an engineer at a bike company not too long ago, and he brought up this concept that it, it is, even has a name. I think it was called a foreseeable misuse, I believe is what it was called, where um, you can test things as much as you want. Things can pass as 
thoroughly as possible by however many multiple cycles, whatever. But if you're not accounting for some level of use that falls outside of the expected range, then at that point you could potentially have problems. So without having more information exactly on what happened with this particular recall, um, we don't know if, you know, did specialized test if someone was riding an SL7 on dirt roads all the time. I mean, I think they're like that. It's a road bike that fits 32s. Like they should assume that people are going to ride on dirt roads. Well, I guess that's the thing. But they, I also wonder, like, did they maybe test it with the headset maybe a little bit loose? Or like there are all these different ways in which bicycles are realistically ridden that I always wonder if that is accounted for in testing. So again, this is all speculation. We don't really know exactly a lot of the nuts and bolts of the details about what happened here. But either way, it does seem like I would love to see just a much, much, much higher safety factor when it comes to critical parts like forks. The more interesting slash concerning thing to me with this is like they made that running change with the different compression ring. It's got to be almost a year ago. Like I would assume from the bikes that I built that had that, like maybe not a year, maybe six, eight months ago, they've made that change. Why? So like if they've made that change, clearly they knew there was an issue. So why at that point was they're not like, hey, we're going to send everyone that has one of these this different compression ring rather than letting people ride the old ones and not say anything and then now do a recall. Well, and potentially accumulating damage in the meantime, Yeah, right? for sure. So, and, and there are so many more of those bikes out now than there were not too long ago. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, this should be like, okay, we're making this change because there's an issue. Let's yeah. do something about this now rather than... Yeah, it, it does seem odd. I mean, it's like they've had no reported injury, so that's good. Um, yeah. But we have but some yeah, pictures of steers that are completely broken too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still like it's not it's not confidence inspiring, right? No. Like, no. Uh, yeah, there are definitely some big questions uh surrounding the the timing of it all. And you know, going through legal channels like the CPSC and and these things, they they take time. Um but at the same time, you know, Canyon proved that you don't have to go through these channels, right? Yeah. You can just right. use the the media and use like your with, social if media. If they were like when to, when they made that when they made that inline change, instead of going like for a recall, they could just say, "Hey, everyone with one of these, we've came out with this new part. We're yeah. gonna send them to you for free as an upgrade to prevent any issues, so that we yeah. don't have to have a recall because these have broken. Someone's got hurt." Yeah, and David, this is something that you and I were talking about offline the other day um, when. IBIS released the original, I shouldn't say original, but the, the, I guess the original new generation Ripley in 2013, I think. With the steel sleeve. With the steel sleeve. That steel sleeve on the fork came about because of me, because when I was testing that bike, I took the thing apart and I noticed that the housing was rubbing on the, on the steerer and I contacted Scott Nickel about it and they didn't issue a recall, but But they they made sure. sent that that, out to all the dealers. Yeah. They made sure that every single bike that they sold as well as they could, had one of these stainless steel sleeves slid over the steer tube, which at that point, it it solved the issue. As far as I know, they never had any problems with someone's fork steer snapping in in half when they're on a ride. Granted, that Ibis is a much, much smaller company. We're talking about much smaller numbers. It was probably something that they could deal with in a more, I guess, you know, a a more uh, manageable number. Yeah. But still, Specialized is not a small company. I mean, that's the thing too, though, like, that's a different subject kind of, but like right now this is a recall because the steer is snapping because the headset wasn't designed well. And previous ones like the BMC was because the steer design was maybe too intricate for actual mass production. And I still think, like we've talked about this before, but in like five years, are we going to see a whole bunch of steers breaking because the cables have worn through them? 
And the fork isn't pulled out regularly to service because it's a three and a half hour process to take the fork out. Right. And again, coming back to that foreseeable misuse thing, I know that all these companies have, you know, they have been testing these forks with internal routing where the housings are lined up against the steer tube. They've done all sorts of testing to verify that the housing doesn't eat through the carbon in their testing anyway. But, but what you, happens like if it's really dirty? What happens if it's wet? It not, can tell you they've seen housing wear through carbon frame. Exactly. It happens all the time. So why is it necessarily different? And even if it, I guess my question is, if it doesn't show up in a test setup, but you know that you have seen it out in the real world, that tells me that there's something wrong with the test setup. And to be to clarify, I guess just to be really clear, I am not specifically picking on specialized for this one issue, but we are talking about a safety issue that involves a critical part of the bike that a lot of companies seem to have messed up in one way or another, whether it be in design or manufacturing or QC or whatever. This is just not something that should be messed around with. Yeah, the front end of the bike failing is not acceptable. Like if your seat stay breaks because it was bonded to the dropout wrong, like you're probably going to be able to ride it out and not go over the bars. Like fork, front end, head tube, stem, handlebars, like that whole area should be overbuilt to not yeah. break. Which is why you, we don't see recalls on those other things, right? Like, you know, we, yeah. do, we pretty much never see recalls on frames. We It's only for forks. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's the one component or bar of you know separate of the bar and stem that you just can't have break yeah so i guess we will see in a few years time hopefully we will not be revisiting this subject with here's these recalls of all these steers that are snapping because the housing is rubbing through them um but unfortunately at this point all we can really do is wait and see we can call out the potential issue the way that we see it um and i guess personally at least for me i mean i certainly have no interest myself in owning a bike that has housing that runs alongside the steer tube. I just don't want to do it. So many watts, though. I can live. I mean, you know, I'm missing so many watts already as it is, Zach. Yeah. That I think I can yeah. spare another uh, couple. I, I will just add that I would like to see the industry update its testing standards because you know they they're currently all designed to this ISO standard, which clearly is not accounting for these these unforeseen yeah. events, right? It's the ISO standard doesn't talk about um, you know it doesn't require a. a a metal ring to you know to to cut into the carbon and then for the fork to be fatigue tested you know there's all these things that we know are problems which are not part of the test that made me think of when some of these not the tarmac but when specialized first started coming out with disc road bikes that i remember that particularly being a a marketing thing with them there was like we've went above the testing for the industry Mm -hmm. and our forks are safer than everyone else's forks because we've pulled their forks apart and seen how they've done the layup where the brake mount and everything is and we've went above the standard so if they've went above the standard and it's still failing yeah what's the well, issue bmc went way above the standard with their original fork still yeah. came, and again still got it, it, could be, cold, right? it could be something wrong with the standard or yeah. again with this whole you know foreseeable misuse thing it could yeah. be an issue where companies are just not accounting for enough variables with how things are being used or misused or abused in the real world. I mean, I think too, like so much of it has to be like, these are essentially like the F1 car of bicycles, but in mass production, like there's, you can't make something paper thin and super light mass produced and expect that the end results are 100% all the time. Like it's just like, and that is like, why don't we overbuild things a little bit? To account for that. Right. I mean, I guess coming going along with that whole F1 thing, 
the the real the the expectations are completely different and we have in in some ways we are expecting to be able to use the exact same level of technology as top racers in the absolute top events the absolute cutting edge of technology if you look at the f1 thing though no one expects to buy a vehicle at any sort of reasonable amount of money that is the exact same level of technology that has durability of a regular everyday car i mean for formula one teams that you are allowed three engines per season it's not really all that much of a distance not really all that much time and if you were to have a car that you said had to have an engine replaced after what every 20 hours of use or something like is no one's going to put up with that yeah well in f1 you know one in 10 races having a complete engine failure and not finishing the race is normal but getting in your car and being told like uh don't hit the chicane too fast you might die because the car splits in half that isn't accepted you know safety is a real concern in f1 these days and that's something that they don't seem to compromise on you know the cars are designed with significant safety measures um so yeah i mean it's a performance product and the performance side of things can fail but but the, the safety, safety does not yeah yeah and i think the cycling industry needs to remember that Right, because right now we're chasing one without, without improving the other one, on the other one concurrently. Anyway, moving on. By the time this podcast goes live, hopefully, Dave, your follow-up article on this Tarmac SL7 recall will be live, and you can go into all sorts of thoughts that Dave and I have on that. So check out the site for that article. Moving on, we have some big acquisition news. So Pond Holdings, the Dutch company that owns Cervelo, Santa Cruz, Focus, Gazelle, Kalkoff, among other brands, uh, they've just announced that they've purchased Dorel Sports, the umbrella company that owns Cannondale, GT, Mongoose, Schwinn, Charge, Fabric, Sombrio. I think that's all the brands for them. Uh, it's an $810 million U.S. deal that now makes Pond the largest bicycle manufacturer in the world, leapfrogging over Giant. Aside from the obvious benefits of just being the biggest uh, in terms of, I guess, manufacturing priority and just market reach and that sort of thing. What do we think about this? Because I've talked to a couple of industry people about this and the thoughts have been pretty wide, I guess, pretty diverse in terms of what the, what they think the effects are going to be. I mean, it's definitely interesting. I feel like so many people like, like I mean, we've been talking about specialized, but like so many people like to rag on specialized and Trek and Giant because they're these massive companies and they're like, oh, you should buy these small companies bikes. But like now these bikes are all part of this massive company, but like most, most consumers aren't going to know that Cervelo is owned by this company that also owns 25 other bike companies. So I think that they've got that plane in their favor. But what about dealers? Because one of the things that I have been noticing in the retail space uh, in the last five, 10 years maybe, is that you're seeing a lot more vertical integration as far as companies and brands go with them owning their own stores. I mean, ages ago, yeah. you used to have like the various concept stores, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But those were pretty, those were pretty rare. Um, now, the whole concept store thing is still not the norm, but what maybe isn't better known among the just general consumers is that a lot of the stores that you might be buying bikes from are actually owned by the company whose bikes you're seeing on the showroom at, floor. At least in North America, yeah. At least yeah. in North America, sure. And I guess the, the most high-profile example of that is a pretty recent setup where um, I think it's Central and Northern California, uh, it, Mike's Bikes. It's a pretty big chain. Uh, if I remember correctly, it specialized number two dealer worldwide, something like that. Mm -hmm. yep. And 
Pon, the company that we just talked about, who, who we were talking about, who just bought, uh, who just bought Dorel Sports, they bought Mike's Bikes, that whole, that whole chain. And in response, Specialized was like, screw you, we'll pull, screw you, we'll, well pull all the bikes Specialized was also trying to buy Mike's Bikes. For sure. Without, <laughs> without question, in the background, there is just no way that Specialized was not in some sort of negotiations with Mike, Mike's Bikes to buy them. But whatever happened behind the scenes... Mike's bikes ended up selling to Pon. It would have been such a good story, though. Mike Seniord, Mike's bikes. I know. Yeah. And you, yeah. you could have just made it up. It could have just always been Mike Seniord's bikes. Right? Yeah. Um, but as as we see, you know, as, as we get more consolidation among the brands at kind of like the upper end of the business, I wonder if we are going to see more consolidation at the retail level with more brands buying more individual dealers and. I, I just wonder how that is going to affect things. Is that going I mean, to make things better or worse for consumers? I feel like it's a good thing because like if big bike companies weren't doing this, we're, it's 2021, the internet is not going away. Like if big bike companies weren't buying and having their own retail stores, they would be going consumer direct because the traditional bike shop model is not the greatest in how things have traditionally been ran. So I think like I would rather see whether it's, this like pawn stuff or specialized or giant like owning a bike shop and selling bikes via like a retail brick and mortar store to consumers i think that's better than it just all being straight off the internet and i guess as far as the various levels of retail or the various levels of the supply chain where where money is being made it does seem to me that the dealer level is where the least amount of margin is being made when you factor in all the different costs yep. and everything. Especially on bikes, like bike shops don't make money off of bikes. Yeah, so as a result of that, because bike shops really don't make that much money, they don't really have the money to pay mechanics and other staff what they maybe should should be getting for the level of service that they're providing. They maybe don't have the level of education that they have because they have to service anything and everything. And they're constantly hiring kids out of high school who don't really have a whole lot of experience because they don't have the money. I wonder if this might actually be a good thing in the sense that retail shops can almost sort of be, I guess not really a loss leader, but kind of a loss leader for a brand in the sense that it can be where you buy the bike, but they can afford to provide a better level of service and have more education for their staff because they don't have to make as much money at that specific level. I think, uh, I mean, my skeptic view of this is it is you need to look at the automotive industry to see where the bicycle industry is going, which is dealerships and then product designed to only be serviced by the dealership right yeah, so it's like sure. proprietary components and the e-bike world is is the gateway to this right like the e-bike world is is a scary um door that's that's opening where you know you, you need specialist tools and specialist software and and all these other things to service these bikes that if you're not a dealer of these bikes you, you basically can't get into them um and I think that's that's quite a a frightening idea, but it is where the industry's going. Yeah. I mean I think like like using Trek Store, for example, like Trek it has tons of Trek stores and throughout the country where they've bought other bike shops and converted it to a Trek store. And I think that, that for them, you're getting a consistent a consistent store and a consistent like experience as for a consumer. Whether you go to this Trek store or this Trek store, you're getting experiencing the same thing rather than previously, like you could go to this Trek dealer and get really good customer service and you could go to this other Trek dealer on the other side of town and it can be complete opposite. They're the same product, but complete opposite experience. And I think having it be consistent, all that does is just yeah. bring the level of professionalism up. 
It's McDonald's model. But yeah, I mean, it goes back to what James was saying, vertical integration, right? So this, I think it was in the 80s where a lot of the, the, bike, the bike boom, I guess, ended and a lot of the bike manufacturers started to, to realize that they might actually be out of business themselves if their brands go bankrupt. You know, GT had gone bankrupt. Um, I think Canada went bankrupt many years later, but that was at a time when uh, the likes of Merida, you know, bought a, a share of Specialized to ensure the continuation that they had a brand in the marketplace. And that a lot of these brands, James, you're looking at me like I'm making this up. Well, no, it just occurred to me that most of the brands that most of the bike brands that Durrell Sports owned have all been have all been bankrupt. bankrupt. Yeah. yeah, yep. Well, that's that's where that's where Durrell acquired them all from, right? Like they they bought them cheap and and brought them back to life. Cannondale seems to be the only one from their group that is still alive. Like, what are you going to do with Schwinn? No, but GT's still still going in, in some markets. Though? Yeah, like, not people really. buy them. Yeah, people buy GT. They have like an enduro race team, but no one's buying GTs. Yeah, I would. But, yeah, would I buy a GT? I might buy a GT. Um, <laughs> but no, the my point with the vertical integration is we saw the vertical integration of of uh, manufacturers and and brands, you know, two or three dec three decades ago, and now the next step in that is the retail. Right, they're ensuring that they have uh, reach to the customers. Uh, and not doing it by you know just limiting themselves to consumer direct to be competitive this is the this is the necessary step to be competitive with the market changing you know canyon has forced the move of of some of these other brands and the only way they can be competitive is to further vertically into integrate right i guess another question with this whole pawn and dorel thing is how all of these brands are going to relate to each other um because pawn overall has been really concentrating incredibly heavily on the e-bike market. Um, it's, it's, again, it's a European-focused corporation. Um, e-bikes are absolutely on, well, maybe it's not, not, not a good way to describe it, but I was going to say that e-bikes are on fire <laughs> worldwide. Um, Batteries exploding. <laughs> <laughs> but if you look at the brands that they have now, you, you know, we were just talking about, you know, what are they going to do with GT or like, you know, Mongoose. Mongoose already, it's a big brand. It's a big box brand. Schwinn also is a big box brand. Um, but what do you do with GT? How are, you know, how is Santa Cruz going to play into this whole thing? It seems like Santa Cruz would have to maintain being a, a, a high-end mountain bike brand. Yeah, mm -hmm. but like Cannondale and Cervelo are essentially competitors. Yeah, like and then making yeah. very Focus similar even. bikes. Yeah. Well, yeah, although Focus seems to be straying more again toward the Focus e isn't market, in the U.S. market anymore. Not anymore. Too. No, um, but certainly Cannondale and Cervelo. I mean, those are direct competitors in an awful lot of categories. So it will be really interesting to see what happens moving forward where Pond decides to position all these brands. That reminds me of a comment from Eugene on Velo Club Slack. I don't know if you saw this, James, but he said, maybe we'll get BB30 right dash 83 AI bottom brackets. <laughs> Can't wait. Look forward to it. <laughs> no, no, Eugene, no. Just no, because just by you saying that, I feel like it's going to make it happen. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, that's terrifying. <laughs> all right, well, let's, let's move on from that. So at this point, again, all this stuff is speculation. We don't really know what's going to happen with Pond, but it is a big industry development and it will be several years, I think, before we really see what the effects of this are going to be at the consumer level, but something is going to happen for sure. We will see. All right, moving on. I just got back from the Sea Otter, uh, which hasn't happened in two and a half years was it or two years something like, yeah a long the time. last one was in 2019 in spring. so yeah about two and two and a half years 
And I have to say, I had mixed feelings about going because, well, for one, it was my first trip in 19 months, which just felt weird. Whoa. Uh, I know, I yeah, know. It's, it's too the, long to not travel. No, it's not. It's <laughs> the longest I've been home in 15 years, Zach. It's nice to leave town. It, it, but you know, it turns out that Boulder is a nice place to be. I like it yeah, in Colorado. It's it nice is. here. But there's good other places too. Sure, but I can go to those places it's, later. Anyway. It's tough to bake sourdough while you're traveling. <laughs> it is. It is. I did bake a loaf the day that I got home too. Oh, did you? Uh, I, was, okay. I, was, I was ready. Um, but uh, I had heard that there were a lot of bigger brands that pulled out of the show. And there were. You know, Shimano wasn't there and Giant wasn't there and you know, Box wasn't there, a variety of other bigger brands. They didn't have but, stock to display. Well, no one right. has any stock really, but um, but it wasn't nearly the ghost town that I was expecting because all of these smaller and medium brands that have always gone to Sea Otter, they still went because it was still worthwhile to them. They didn't have like huge international staff to pull in and they didn't have quite as big of an issue with stock. Um, so there was plenty of new stuff to see, pretty decent amount of attendees. It seemed like the races were okay. This was the first year the, the event was run under its new ownership. They they were bought by Lifetime, Lifetime not too long ago. Um, so I think they, they were probably under some pressure to keep it going. And it was outside and it was breezy. I didn't really feel that bad about talking to people. But anyway, still pretty neat. Um, one thing that I thought was kind of cool about the show was how there were an awful lot of products there that were not necessarily aimed at sort of like the optimizing performance sort of end of the market, like we were, what we were just talking about. But a lot of it was actually aimed at sort of just like making bikes comfier or like, you know, a little bit more convenient, that sort of thing. Like It's as the, if cycling's like a participation <laughs> sport or even used for weird. utility. What? Weird. No. It's a novel idea. Yeah. Like, you know, Redshift Sports had kind of a, a nicer, lighter version of their shock stop suspension seat post. That was pretty good and not terribly expensive. Uh, Cane Creek had a longer travel version of their e-silk suspension seat post. Like those are two pretty big ones and they're actually quite popular apparently. The Thudbuster. Well, they're apparently selling, King Creek is apparently selling Thudbusters like crazy. That's wild. I actually just got one the other day from my Urban Arrow. That's wild. It's amazing. It's so the good. 90s are here again. It's so, it, they are. They are. I, I, have you seen what the kids are wearing these days? I know. They're totally back. Yeah. I have uh, seen this. Um, but one of the coolest ones I think I saw, and there was this company, Archer Components. They've been around for a while. They have these retrofit kits that mm. basically adapt any, mm, they adapt any mechanical <laughs> rear derailleur and turn it into a wireless electronic thing. It does not, I, I, I still say it does not work as well as a no, factory setup. It, it just doesn't. No, it um, really doesn't. They, it's gotten better. So they have a new- It's just like so rudimentary how you pair it and the app and it all, it's just- Yeah, but, but, here, but, but wireless, but, Zach. Wireless. Yeah. But here, here's the thing. Here, <laughs> until, here is, until the cable at the derailleur, of course. But exactly. wireless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, it's just one of those products that like, like I'm sure like nothing against those guys. I'm sure they're all like, yeah, super into it. And they've made an awesome product that does work and do what they say it does. But it's just one of those products that like, why? Like you've not solved a problem. Like you've, yeah, like the derailleur and the shifter with attached with the cable work really, really well. Like, why have we made this thing more complicated? Well, here, here's one thing that I was talking to them about because, um, Zach, in a lot of ways, I, I agree with you. Like I have not, I've tried it myself. I don't necessarily feel a burning need for it to be around in most applications because yeah, like you said, cable actuated rear derailleur systems work quite well now, even on- they Work really, really even well. Even on full suspension mountain bikes that deal with a lot of like dirt and debris and water and convoluted cable routing, whatever, like it all works really well. But one of the things that I was talking to one of the co-founders about was 
how their systems are being used for adaptive bikes because they can they have so much flexibility in terms of how their systems can be set up with different derailleurs and cassettes and how the buttons can be positioned, how many there are, uh, even more so than DI2 or ETAP or anything like that, because uh, they had this logo calling them, it said, keep mechs dumb, which uh, is sort of a reference to not having everything be communicating with each other via some crazy proprietary electronic language. Um, they're using dumb switches. It's, it's pretty straightforward. You can individually calibrate the position of every single sprocket uh, position with the derailleur. It, it's interesting in the sense that there is so much flexibility built into it. So while it does not seem to be... But they market it towards mountain bikes and road bikes and stuff. They they do. They do. And I have yet to see one actually in the wild that someone used, someone's I, using. I had one customer that wanted that he wanted to try one on his TT bike. We tried it, set it up, got it dialed, did like a week's worth of riding on it, and it was too annoying to to like get it to turn on and get it to work and turn off. And we ended up just putting an ETAP on it. I, so yeah, I guess it doesn't sound like it's as dialed as it should be, but the technology could be improved upon to a point of being useful is it, like, I, so, I can see, I can see points where this would be useful where you could use, you know, a hundred dollar redirailer and set it up with some crazy wide range cassette in which, the you know the matching shifter was never intended to handle and then you can run whatever shifter you want and i mean it's not that at the moment but i could see the technology getting to that right because I, I don't see it as being a legitimate head-to-head -head uh, competitor toward the complete factory developed systems from shimano sram or even campagnolo for that matter but what i do find interesting about it is because there is so much flexibility and possibility baked into the system as far as how you can set it up, it does allow you to kind of play around with different combinations much more than you might otherwise be able to do, which I think to me, seems like the real draw of the system. It does, even with the new and improved one that they had at the show, it, it clearly just does not work as well as, you know, Eagle Access, for example. It just but doesn't. Even Shimano mountain bike, it's all mechanical and it works really well. Like, there's nothing wrong with... Uh, Tom Pitcock won the Olympic mountain bike race with mechanical shifting. No, like, there's nothing happen. wrong with it. Um, it's fake. It was, it was, it was, it it was, was just a fake... It was a fake cable there. He had to be wireless. Yeah, could not right. have won the Olympics otherwise. But um, what I will say is we're obviously not the market for this. We know how to change cables. But then, like, why are they marketing it towards, but, like, pink bike and all these well, other categories think, where it's high-end yeah, bike stuff? I think because the, people think it's neat. I think the purpose of this product is e-bikes, right? If you if you're a if you're a consumer and you have a rear derailleur cable that you snag on a tree on your e-mountain bike, you're probably not going to be able to change that housing yourself. Um, and it's quite plausible that you could then cut the housing off, pull it out of the frame, and then install one of these things yourself at home, and then never have to worry with that cable routing again. And I actually think that's quite attractive. But like, let's say this happens in an e-mountain bike. There's like 15 wires just dangling out because e-bikes aren't made well. Yeah. So that happens. You've like ripped an actual electronic wire. So now your motor doesn't work either. Yeah. Like, I, well, then you yeah. go to the dealer. But for, in this case, it's something <laughs> that a consumer can do themselves, right? This this thing they could install themselves with. I assume it zip ties to the chainstay from the ones I've yeah, seen. But I like, don't know if so, they change that. Okay. Yeah. So I would, having installed one of these, the average consumer would not really be able to install one like most consumers have a hard time adjusting 
a barrel adjuster on a regular Fair derailleur. Enough. Yeah. And like, this is, I don't want to say it's complicated, but there are many more steps and it's not, it's convoluted. Like, yeah. Like ETAP, you hold the button, the light blinks, and then you push the other button on the shifter and yep. it's paired and yep. it works. It's easy. This is yep. not that. Yeah. Right. But again, as I said, I don't see this as a direct competitor to those brands, but if you are the person who's like, oh, whatever, like Shimano says, I can't run this with a any, something outside of a 5034, let me watch this. Yeah, I but think, that's like such, I mean, how many people is that? Yeah, but how many how many sets of these things does Archer expect to sell? Probably not many. So anyway. I mean, I don't, yeah. I, still, I, understand I think that there people, is a market, but yeah. I think there yeah. is a market. It's intriguing Which to me. Which is not it. None <laughs> yeah. of the three of us are probably ever going to use this thing. Yeah. But- I find it interesting that it exists. And yes. I find it interesting that if I really wanted to set up a wireless seven speed setup on an old, on an old uneven Suntour AccuShift freewheel, I could do that, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to. Yeah. All right. What was the coolest thing you saw at Sea Otter? Uh, the coolest thing I saw at Sea Otter. I, I hate to say it. That as, made you as go, much, ooh, I want that. As much as I am not really in the target market for this sort of bike, given just where I'm riding and the type of stuff that I'm doing. Uh, I have always kind of had a soft spot for Turner mountain bikes. Mm -hmm. um, just kind of- They the were, whole, especially when they're all anno. Oh yeah. man, so good. Yeah, they were so good back then. So they have, Dave Turner, he, he has this new nitrous titanium hardtail, which unfortunately it's not welded here. It just, it, he just can't be cost competitive welding them here in the US. So they're, they're made in Asia, but the design of it looked really pretty cool. The geometry looked pretty good. Um, the pricing was pretty decent from what I from what I remember. I think it was maybe like just over two thousand bucks for the frame. I think for tie, that again. pretty good. For tie, it's not bad, um, but it was beautiful. Is it absolutely beautiful? I have no use for it whatsoever. Is but it I still intended want to ride one. for XC like the original nitros, or is it was no, it more trail? It's kind of more trail. You can yeah. fit a twenty nine by two six, or I think, or a twenty seven five by two eight, uh, semi slack ish head tube angle. Nothing crazy. Uh, pretty long reach. Um, I mean, it's designed to be a trail hardtail. It's yeah. not designed to be a race bike. Yeah. Um, but it's absolutely beautiful. Like I looked at that yeah. and just, just the shaping of it and the, like all the design elements that went into it. And you've got like one of those plate style chainstay yoke things on the, uh, down at the bottom. And it, it just seemed to be doing a whole lot of things the, well. Yeah. The name enough was enough for me to take a second look at it because I, <laughs> I was yeah. so, so close to owning a nitros back in the day. Like when the dual suspension, super light cross country bike, oh, yeah. I was... I was, I mean, yeah, I, I, I had Jeff it in the Kibush's car. ones were the sweetest. Oh, like they were so sketchy. They were yeah. so, they were so light and so it ridiculous. They were so good though. <laughs> they were so good. So anyway, that was maybe one of the coolest things I saw at the show. There was a bunch of other stuff over there. There's that wacky 3D printed helmet, which they made one, they measured my head. They made one for me. It was a company called Cap Sports. Um, it's apparently going to be showing up not this week, but the week after. So we'll see if that's any good. Enduro had some, uh, some new, Pretty novel bottom bracket and headset bearings that they're claiming are way more durable because the, the bearing balls are a lot bigger. Um, that, some, their their de headset idea, which is to integrate the bearing into the cup, right? So the outer the outer race becomes the cup. Correct. Is that correct? Crank Brothers used to do that. Yeah, that, that was my point. I've got I've got a Crank Brothers headset in, yeah. a, in a cross bike like that. They but, were not durable. But the, but, no. those bearing ball, but the bearing balls, were, I remember those can, kind They were lower headsets. stack height. So when you really wanted to yeah. slam your stem, yeah. that's the- And they're yeah. really small. They look, they look but, great with like the old but that, I guess head that, tube. That was, the, that was the critical flaw in, the, in, those, uh, in, that, in those headsets designed back in the day is the bearing balls were still really small. So whereas these, um, so um, Matt Harvey from, from Enduro Bearings, he was telling me, I think uh, in a lot of 
fairly conventional bearings that are out there. You have a bearing ball diameter of like 2.2 millimeters or something like that. And in these, they're closer to four. Um, so when they get that big, you just have much, much better load capacity. You have a lot more tolerance toward, you know, for things being out of, out of alignment. Um, supposedly if you are having issues with bearing durability that are not related to corrosion, I would say, even though things are stainless, I mean, it's still metal, if you get water in there, it's still gonna be a problem. But if you are consistently having issues with bottom brackets and headsets dying because of something other than corrosion, then these might be an interesting way to go. Mm. Well, what was the, the best best value product you saw the best value product um, the best affordable product that that got you excited i guess it depends on what you consider affordable uh, you know what like do you an consider S affordable yeah s-works level <laughs> stuff um <laughs> yeah well I, I would say as far as far as affordable bikes go um there really weren't that many for like kind of lower end bikes at sea otter it's just not really where a lot of that stuff is showcased but one thing that I do always like to see our um, companies continuing to offer better lighting products because at least for the Northern hemisphere, we're heading into fall and winter. The days are getting, definitely getting a lot shorter. And lights are one of those products where it's one of those things that are only one of the only products that can actually extend the length of your riding day. And I like how prices on those are consistently getting lower and the brightnesses are consistently getting higher and the lights are just getting better. Um, and I, I'm pretty happy to see that has continued and Light in Motion had some new lights there and Knight Rider uh, and kind of more of an upstart company, Outbound Lighting, they've been around for a little while, but still pretty new. Um, they had a prototype road model that they were kind of showing. Um, so that that's all good stuff to see. I just like seeing how you have a lot more options than there used to be as far as good yeah. lights. Yeah, I used to do 24 hour racing and, and I remember racing with like a light that was about $1,500 about that. And that was kind of, that was like almost necessary to race at a, at a high level at night is to yeah, spend that like much. Like the battery you know. pack in the bottle cage. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So <laughs> oh. it's, it's, you know, that same light would be, you know, $150 now. And terrible. And yeah. still, well, because we were talking about how I used to run like a 15 watt Knight Rider halogen set up with like this little nickel metal hydride battery pack that ran for like an hour and a half. I was lucky and probably put out thinking back to how bright those things were, maybe like 150 lumens, maybe. But do you remember how, how bright we thought they were? Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, look how fast I can go. Yeah. yeah. At the time, you're like, it feels like it's day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I just remembered one thing that I did see that was really cool. Um, uh, Specialized had this new version of their tactic trail helmet. Uh, I think they're calling it the Tactic 4. And I was looking at it in the, in the booth and kind of just mainly paying attention to how it, it looked really cool. It had a lot of really good design elements to it. Um, it retails for $110 US, which I thought yeah, was an absolutely cool. fantastic price point for something yeah. like that. Tons of coverage, full micro shell coverage, top and bottom, so you don't have to deal with like any exposed foam and stuff. Um, straps are integrated into the bottom of the shell, so you don't have to deal with uh, like, like wacky fit that happens sometimes when you have straps that are anchored inboard. The retention system was built into the actual back of the helmet, so that felt that felt really good. It had MIPS, all the, it had everything that you wanted: good ventilation, internal channeling, tons of coverage, eyeglass stowage, all that stuff. And again, hundred bucks, hundred ten dollars. That's also pretty good. That yeah. that was a pretty killer that. value for me. Yeah, yeah. So that was good to see. Best value product. Yes. All right. I feel like. You know, since we have not been doing regular nerd alert segments for a yeah. while now, the last one we did was at 
Worlds? It was like a month ago. Yeah. And well, I was like, and that wasn't even really a, really a regular no. Nerd Alert segment. So it's been no, quite yeah. a while. We have a giant that was pile. Like beer and frites, yeah. Nerd Alert. Yeah. We have a giant pile of asking mechanic questions to go through. We are not going to get through anywhere near all of them today, but I feel like we need to hammer out at least a few. Let's do it. All right. First one from Velo Club member Eric Geyer. How well should I expect road tubeless tires to hold air without sealant? Not really at all. Mm. Well, it depends, right? Mm. I wouldn't do it. I, I don't, yeah. I'm not aware of any that are 100% meant to be run without sealant. I mean, like the but, old Hutchison's, those, those claim to be like proper tubeless that you didn't need sealant. Yeah. yeah. Current, um, current Goodyear but, ones hold air But basically well now sealant. every tire is called tubeless, tubeless ready. ready. So that means tubeless with sealant. With the recent release of Continental's new um, tubeless ready tire, the the five thousand S Continental, um, I saw some people suggest that it was it was a downgrade because the original version was fully sealed airtight and you didn't need to run sealant, and the new version isn't, and therefore they wouldn't buy it. But I'd why would you not want to run sealant? That's like the whole benefit of using yeah, tubeless. I would argue that you don't, you shouldn't be running tubeless without sealant. Yeah, it's like yeah. it's. It's just a, it's a key feature of the, point. of yeah. this. Yeah, it's, a, it's part of the system. So, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't care whether a tire is fully airtight or not because I'm always going to run. I mean, sealant. you don't want one that's like super thin and porous. No. That just like seeps air, but yeah, like I don't want it. Yeah. Running tubeless without sealant seems really silly. Yeah. Right. So basically, Eric, not very long and don't be tempted to run without sealant because it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. We're not going to save that much weight. Um, next question from Rick Tan. Uh, his bike is shifting down to the smaller cogs from the largest cog whenever he backpedals. What is causing this? Shifting while normal pedaling is fine and the bike and the bike has never been dropped. I mean, that happens on pretty much every mountain bike. It, it does. So um, I guess to add some more information to this, this is a newer bike that he has purchased. I don't know what his older bikes look like, but newer bikes uh, with very wide range gearing. Uh, and short chain and stays. Short chain stays. They do have chain line issues that... I'd say are more tolerated now than they used to be. So generally speaking, when you're just pedaling forward and applying power, they're they're fine. Yeah. But when you back pedal is often when you have issues with the chain kind of walking down the cassette toward the outside. To me, like real world on a bike ride, this isn't an issue. No. Like it's just not an issue. It's like in the stand or you're like wheeling the bike backwards around in your garage or something. Like real world out on the trail or on the road. Like if you back pedal, it's like 180 degrees through a corner or something. You're not just sitting there just spinning backwards for minutes on end. Um, so basically, Rick, it's not something that you should really worry about as long as it's working well while you're riding. I would say it's not really something. Yeah, but it's just like chain line issues for yeah. sure. Uh, next question from Jeff Diefenbach. Um, and you, you two will have to remind me if, if, I've, if we've addressed this question already. Um, Jeff is asking, how do hydraulic disc brake systems self-adjust and manage the difference between new and worn pads? I feel like we maybe talked about this. I feel like maybe if Jeff hasn't asked it before, I feel like someone else has asked it before. Yeah. Oh, that's, I don't remember. Can I anyways, answer it Yeah, answer it. Well, uh, modern hydraulic disc brakes, if you want to really back up, first generation hydraulic disc brakes for Did mainly not mountain this. bikes, they were, they were called closed hydraulic systems. Um, you had sort of a fixed volume of oil in your setup. When things got hot, that fluid expanded, the pads would get closer, uh, they didn't self-adjust, that sort of thing. Modern hydraulic brake systems on bikes, they're called open systems, and that's why if you were to open up the reservoir cap on a lever, you have like a little rubber bladder in there, and that allows for the fluid to expand without having, without causing the pistons to, to 
move in closer to the to the pad, or move, but that having the pistons to move in closer to the rotor, that is also what allows them to self-adjust because those pistons will, uh, they'll move a certain amount based on the geometry of the seal that's in the calipers. Uh, and when the pistons move too far so that the seal doesn't kind of flex back and forth, the piston will just advance past uh, past the seal, or I guess advance in the seal to, to make up for whatever pad wear there is. And then the volume will self-adjust because you have that rubber, um, you have that rubber blotter up top and everything still works the way it's supposed to. Um, in theory, at least yeah. as long as the whole system Most is bled properly and there's no air in it. Yeah. Seal flex at the pistons. There you go. If, if we lost, if James lost you. <laughs> well, you, didn't, you didn't like my complicated and convoluted answer, Dave? Yeah. I was it just starting so to clear. think about the ocean and I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Dave, I feel like this one's for you. I don't have this person's full name, but Garth Mick I, I don't know what the rest of his last name is, somewhere in Australia, but Garth works in a shop that sells a lot of commuter bikes. And a lot of those riders are likely to go about two to four weeks, sometimes much longer, he says, without lubing their chain. Uh, they're probably riding in mainly dry conditions with the regular debris and grit you'd find on the road, but some wet weather is expected as well. What would you recommend as a lube for these people to extend the drivetrain life with minimal work? Hmm. Um, 10W40? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, probably a wet lube of some kind. So uh, something like a, a thicker oil, like NFS or Silka Synergistic, um, which is probably a bit too expensive for this type of customer. But yeah, a thicker oil, which is known to, to stay on the chain and last and, and have good rust uh, inhibitors is probably... The way to go but still judiciously applied so that there's not lube everywhere because that's what wears yeah. everything out yeah so um yeah i mean my advice would just yeah a wet lube and then when yeah ideally whenever they remember run it through a rag reapply is probably the most you can get out of you know the most you can ask of most consumers um you know the we're not talking about a consumer that's going to spend time degreasing and, and waxing so yeah that's Keep it simple with that type of customer and go with a, a long-lasting wet lube. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Uh, the other one, which I, I've, I've got a bottle. I haven't really tried it yet. Um, something like that new Wolf Tooth chain lube, which is kind of just a rebadged lube from, I think it's SCC. Um, that's, that sounds like an option as well. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know how well that works, but it, it's kind of a similar idea. It's a synthetic lube that kind of designed to use it like a wet lube, um, but hopefully runs a little bit drier uh, but yeah i don't i don't know if how effective and how well it meets the claims i mean the big thing we've talked about this a million times but any wet lube the big thing is just not over lubing it like if your chain's black and disgusting then you've done something wrong it almost just seems like if you're going to use a wet lube in that sort of environment apply a little bit so that your chain is clearly lubricated wipe off whatever you can from the excess run it until it's clearly dry and maybe just on the verge of squeaking or just starting to squeak. And then repeat. And then repeat. Because otherwise I feel like for a commuting application, if you were to apply it more often than that, the tendency is to over lube. Yeah. I mean, I know people that like lube their chains every ride and it's like, no, please don't do that. Do you have a, do you have a surcharge for that when they come in? <laughs> no, I mean, every bike gets washed here. Hmm. So it's okay. not, yeah. <laughs> what do you do in the winter time? Uh, yeah. Wash bikes. That's fine. Hmm. It's not that hard. It's cold outside. I've worked many across races in the cold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Another chain loop question. Uh, this one comes from Oren Devaskin. 
Uh, Oren listens to the Nerd Alert episode about chain lube. Thanks for listening. I uh, love the techie discussion, but the practice isn't for me. I don't remove my chain for cleaning. I don't submerge it in degreaser or an ultrasonic cleaner. I will never, ever likely, <laughs> I'll most likely never lube, never then lube it in a crock pot. I do use a biodegradable degreaser spray and then just a light chain oil like Pedro's. Works okay, but... I think as we're not going to be surprised to hear this, it does grime up quickly on the road and dries off almost immediately off-road. What would be the best practices for road and off-road if I don't want to take my chain off? Um, I I think people have misunderstood me a little bit with the waxing because I'm I'm not. I think we've understood you very well, Dave. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not a complete zealot for uh, off the bike waxing. I actually most of my own bikes I use a drip wax lube, um, and and the. The drip wax loops have come a long, long way in the last five years. You know, prior to that, yes, taking your chain off the bike and dipping it in molten speed wax was by far and away the best way. But the drip loops now are, are nearly as good. So they're really good. Um, I still use a crock pot, but only for a few bikes where I know that I'm not going to be riding them in, in grit and stuff. For the bikes that I know I'm, I'm getting dirty often, I, I just use a good drip on wax lube so um smooth is probably my favorite as far as the well-priced ones go and then uh silka super secret and ceramic speed ufo drip uh my favorites if if your budget can extend to them um they kind of will in theory save you money long term but it's it's a higher upfront cost yeah i mean i think too like cleaning the chain on the bike there's nothing wrong with that you can get a chain really clean on the bike um, and I would say like in the grand scheme of things, chain lubes aren't that expensive. So I would say like buy a few different ones and try it, try it, like clean your chain, put X lube on, go ride, see how it does in your riding environment. If it doesn't work or you wanted to play around more then like try another bottle of lube, like it's not expensive. Yeah, it is. And well, it I, can be expensive. It well, can yeah, be, but, it can I, be, but like um, most general lubes are yeah, not very right. expensive. No, but I, I would say that if you don't want to take your chain off your bike, um, if you use one of the on-bike chain cleaners, uh, like Park has one, oh, Pedro's has one. You don't need to use those, though. You don't, you don't have to use those, but... No pro race mechanic that cleans bikes with the chain on uses one of those. No, but most pro race mechanics who clean the chains on the bike don't really bother with getting absolutely everything out of the chain either. Yeah, most of them get it pretty clean, though. What kind of fluid are they using? They're using well, yeah. well, they're also cleaning yeah. the chain Let's every day. That. He did, he did yeah. specifically yeah. say that he's using a biodegradable degreaser yeah. spray, yeah. and not diesel. Right. Um, anyway, right. I have found that those actually do do a pretty good job of getting your chain really legitimately clean. Um, you can use uh, a biodegradable cleaner in those things and they work pretty well. So whatever lube that you end up with, I would still recommend at least making sure that your chain is really, really clean um, before you get started with anything. And that often leads to the best results because otherwise you still have a lot of that factory gunk inside of your chain. Yeah, um, if you've cleaned the chain and you touch it and your fingers still get black, then yeah, not it's enough. not clean enough yeah. for wax. Yep, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, to, to go back to the original question, I would recommend a wax based drip loop. So, um, which will be great off road. It'll keep the chain clean. It'll create a barrier to stop dirt from getting into the chain links. Uh, and it does the job very well on road as well. So, all right, we're going to have last couple of questions here before we wrap up for today. I feel like this is going to be an interesting one as far as, as I'm curious to see what your opinions are on this one. Adrian Freeman would like to know. Should you grease the Freehub body before installing a cassette? I do, yes. I do too. I used to not. So like I was never taught to. I The first, I don't even know, however long time of being a bike mechanic, I never did. And then I had on my personal bike, I had this mystery creek that I could not solve. 
and it ended up being the Freeho body and the cassette interface. So ever since then, I greased the Freeho body. Dave? Uh, I grease it when there's a mystery creek. Uh, but I would my advice would be if you live in a dry climate where rust is never an issue, then it's not something you need to do. Whereas if you're constantly riding in the rain or on salted roads, then you should do it because the, the cassette can actually rust to the freehub body. I guess my thing has always been that for any interface on your bike that is not well designed to be a proper press fit or tapered press fit, some sort of fit like that. When you have two parts that are up against each other that may move, and then that is always a potential for creaking. Um, to me, it's always been a situation where there is basically no downside right, there's to applying a, a to light this. coating of grease on your free hub body. It's pretty well protected. It doesn't really get dirty. Um, so for me, I always put a little bit of grease on the free hub body just because why not? And if it's the sort of thing where I know it could potentially creak later. I don't want to spend a lot of time finding mystery creaks, creaks later. And whenever I build a bike, I always go to whatever extent I can to prevent noise prevent noise from the get-go rather than try and find them later. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I mean, there's no major issue with doing it. I will say I've, I have seen them around here where it gets very dusty. Um, I have seen them get like build up with with quite a lot of like black gunk after a while if the, if the free-up body's been being greased it's not such an issue though that that's that black gunk's not necessarily going to go anywhere so it's just messy when you take off the cassette yeah i think the issue is like if you're the kind of person that you change it swap cassette sizes all the time yeah then it gets a bit nasty yeah and, yeah. and to be clear we're not talking about slathering on a, like a, no, it's like a, a, a little thin film. film no yeah no. like it's like very very thin film of grease so is, is that a two and a half out of three of us saying to grease the free hub body yeah. then yeah. Okay. What about, just don't what do about waxing freeho bodies. Um, yeah. I think it's the universal. No, that's, that's well. That just happens when you do the whole bike dip. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I I will say I, I knew a mechanic once who used to lube every cog. Uh, don't do that. No, <laughs> no, no, no. All right. Last question. This is an interesting one. So this one comes from Joe Mediola. Uh, sorry, Joe Medioli. Uh, Joe recently upgraded to a new bike and is considering a refresh slash rebuild of his old bike, which is an old 2013 Cervelo S5 mechanical drivetrain rim brakes. Uh, given the frame is eight plus years old, carbon, not disc compatible, not great tire clearance. Joe is wondering if it's worth doing a rebuild to have a second bike that he can use as a trainer slash occasional TT bike, or is it better to save the money for a newer bike compatible with future tech with, you know, discs and water wheels, et cetera. He, the upgrade that he would be considering on that old S5 would be new wheels, DI2, a new bottom bracket and crank set. I think it depends on how much you like the old frame. I mean, like in that, that time, like, I mean, I rode that bike for a bit and like, it was a sweet bike. It was crazy fast. And road riding hasn't really changed. Like the, we're the, still only, the downside of that bike is you can't fit anything bigger than like a, a 23. Like it's a very small 25 will fit. Yeah. And I if remember, he's like yeah. trying to get, if he's trying to get new wheels, like any new wheel is going to be much wider yeah. and yeah. that's going to be an issue. Old GP 4000 and 25 didn't fit on that frame from memory. Correct. So, yeah. That's yeah. rough. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I originally had, I originally was thinking that you could go ahead and upgrade that older bike. Um, but not, if it's, not I would with say everything. If it's would, just going to be a trainer bike, like don't put DI2 on no, it. No, like, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't go all out with like a crank set and DI2 and all that. It just seems like too much money for that. Um, if it's something that you are going to occasionally use for a TT bike where you're not going to be running wider wheels and tires than what you have on there now anyway, then it seems worthwhile to keep it around. 
as long as everything's working well in there. But I certainly wouldn't pour that much money into it, though. Um, again, unfortunately, just being despite despite the fact that that bike is a very fast aero road bike, it is just really limiting in terms of what you can fit on there. For so time. stiff too. It's not a smooth ride. It's not the comfiest bike no. out there. Like if that bike could fit 28s and it, everything else was still the same, then I'd say for sure do it. Like that's an awesome bike. But the tire limiter is is definitely a thing. Hmm. All right, Joe. There you go. I'd be curious to hear what you end up deciding here. And with that, that will be our last question for the Ask a Mechanic segment of the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. And that'll be our show for today. So I hope you enjoyed us having another old school group episode this time. If you liked what you heard, please give us a like or a review on Apple iTunes or whatever you use to listen to your podcast. Make sure you subscribe. By all means, please tell your friends about Nerd Alert because it brings more people to our audience. It makes it easier for us to bring you these episodes. Thanks for listening. Please consider joining Velo Club, by the way, because that's where all these questions come from. And we will see you next week. It's definitely more fun at Flanders or at, at Worlds in Flanders. Yeah. Like it would be fun to do this as a group with everyone at a bar in Flanders. It would be. We can we can try. I mean, it is modern air travel. We could I feel like just meet at a bar. This is Zach's way of getting rid of me because he knows I'm in in, in Australia yeah, and yeah. I won't no, ever be able to travel again. <laughs> that is true. Hey, no, you're you're on your way, Dave. You're on your yeah. way. You're out of lockdown you'll now. Be fully able to travel in three years. This is true. I, and 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 to be clear, I am really hopeful that you will be able to join me for Sea Otter next April, which is only six months away. I'm hopeful too. For a couple of reasons, yeah. I would like some help covering that show. Yeah. But also, I have run out of shapes a long, long time ago. And okay. I know that there are a lot of new flavors, so I there need are. a shipment of shapes. Flanders okay. Roubaix next April too. I know, but that's after Sea Otter. And Flanders and Roubaix are separated by two weeks now. That's true. It's tricky. Hmm. Still, still worth the trip. It is. Hmm. Anyway, we'll see you next time. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>